What do you suppose are the most powerful, significant, and world-changing words that have ever been spoken? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Maybe they were uttered by the great patriot Patrick Henry as he addressed the Virginia Convention in March of 1775. As for me, give me liberty or give me death. Maybe they were part of the speech by Abraham Lincoln on Cemetery Hill in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, when he began 160 years ago by saying fourscore and seven years ago. Perhaps instead they were uttered by Neil Armstrong in 1969 when he took that first step on the moon and his words were heard some 238,900 miles away when he said, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. You're doing well. Could they be the powerful words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he delivered his famous speech with, I have a dream? Or might they have been uttered by the young president, John F. Kennedy, in his inaugural address when he challenged Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Or maybe, finally, they were the words of President Ronald Reagan. Do you remember them when when he stood in West Berlin and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. There are so many examples of words that have have really resounded with us, that have changed culture around us, that have affected transformation in the world in which they were spoken. But it's not as hard to narrow down the choices to one as we might think. You see, while each of these great speeches affected change in the hearts of those who heard them, while each left an indelible mark on the culture around them, there's one word, a solitary four-syllable word uttered on a dark hill outside the ancient city of Jerusalem on a Friday afternoon nearly 2,000 years ago that resounded in the past, beckons to be heard in the present, and will echo for all eternity. It's not an English word, It was spoken in a language understood then, but by few today, that word was to telestai. And it was a word that's uttered in our text today. We're concluding our series this morning, The Cross Speaks, by looking at the last, the final word of Jesus Christ on the cross. We read it last week when we read his words, I am thirsty, but I want us to revisit this passage again this morning and focus now on that final word. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 19. We will read verses 28 through 30. To keep things fresh, I want to ask you to do something with me that's been tradition in in many uh, churches throughout the centuries, and that is to stand in honor of the reading this morning, the sacred word of God. Would you stand? John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, and the words are on the screen in front of you as well. After this, Jesus, knowing that was all now was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head 
and gave up his spirit. Would you remain standing and pray with me? God, this morning it's very easy for us to gloss over words such as this because they're so short. Three words, it is finished. We've read them perhaps hundreds of times before. Perhaps we've heard the passage preached on numerous times, but, but I wonder if we've ever stopped to really consider exactly what was meant, exactly what was completed, what was done, why it was done, who heard those words, and what that cry means today for us. And so I pray that as we focus in with laser-like intensity on these three words, which were in the original text but one word, that your word, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, would penetrate our hearts this morning. And that through your word, the power of your Holy Spirit at work in this place, lives might be transformed. If there are those for whom the word of victory is new today, for whom the story of redemption has never been enacted in their lives, I ask that today would be the day that your spirit would so move in their life that they wouldn't be able to leave their seat without having surrendered and given their lives to you. And I pray for those of us who have already given our lives that this would be a resounding cry to remind us of the importance of sharing this good news with those who are lost in the jungles of sin and despair. So now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together in your sight be pleasing, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. To telestai. It's a, it's a foreign word for you and I, a meaningless sound of consonants and vowels, but not so to those who heard it from the lips of the God-man who hung on the cross that Friday afternoon. A servant would utter to telestai when he completed a, ma- a task that had been assigned to him by his master. A priest would declare to Telestai when examining an animal sacrifice and finding it to be faultless. An artist would declare to Telestai when a great portrait was completed. And a writer might declare to Telestai when the final edits to a manuscript were made. A merchant would declare to Telestai when a price had been paid. You see, to Telestai was a legal term. It signified that a debt had been relieved. Now, if we spoke that ancient language today, we might re- proclaim it if you were a mountain climber and you reached the peak of Mount Everest. You might declare it if you finished your master's degree dissertation or your doctoral work to Telestai. It's finally finished. Or perhaps when you paid the final payment on your mortgage, to Telestai, it's finished. But our English language, it, it lacks a word with that much power and that much meaning. And so our translators resort to using three words, it is finished. 
And yet in so doing, we miss the richness of the way in which Jesus spoke this word. It's, it's what we call a third-person, singular, perfect, passive, indicative verb. Now, unless you're a grammar uh, teacher or you're a wannabe Jeopardy contestant, that sentence conjures up the dryness and dullness of an English lesson in elementary school. My apologies if there are any English teachers in the audience. But in case it sounds uninteresting to you today, just bear with me for a moment, for there is something to be learned from the very form of the common word that Jesus used here. First, from the fact that it's in the third person and it's singular, it is finished, Jesus declared. He didn't say, I am finished. No, Jesus had something in mind that was significant, that was finished, that was accomplished, and we're going to talk about that in just a few moments. And while the verb usually spoke of things that happened in the past, Jesus puts it in what is known as the perfect tense. He spoke of that which had been completed in the past with results that continued on into the present. It literally means this happened and is still in effect today. What Jesus is speaking about is finished in the past, still finished in the present, and will remain finished into all of the future. His words could never be undone. What is finished would never become unfinished. And it's also spoken in the passive tense, as if a great outside force had acted upon the circumstances. You see, Jesus didn't even say, I finished it, though perhaps that would have been accurate. No, God the Father Almighty has acted and his purposes have been accomplished through the death of his son. And finally, the verb is indicative, which means it evokes a sense of certainty. There was no question about this. Jesus didn't cry out, it might be finished. It should be finished. It could be finished. No, like a dot at the end of a line, he declared, it is finished, period, end of story. This single, solitary, brief word encompasses the movement of God from ages past throughout all eternity. And it delivers a sound, a message, a proclamation. God has accomplished in Christ that which he purposed from before the foundations of the world. To Tetelestai, it is finished. Now, as long as we're considering grammar, the question has to be asked, what's the object of this verb? What exactly is finished? Have you ever wondered that as you read the text? There is no apparent subject assigned to this verb. We're left to study scripture and to hear the words of others who have reflected on this passage, to think with commentators and other great preachers throughout the ages as to exactly what is meant when Jesus says it is finished. Well, I'm going to suggest to you six things this morning that were finished. And if you follow along in your outlines, in your bulletins, you'll have a chance to fill them in if you so desire. First of all, I would suggest that Jesus' suffering was finished. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But to him was given to drink the cup of suffering for you and for me, and so willingly he drank it down. But that cup was finished in that moment. 
The flagellation and the beating he had endured were over. The unimaginable pain that had been inflicted on him by the Roman soldiers with the spikes that were driven through his hands and his feet. The unbearable thirst. The excruciating agony of a crown of thorns driven into his skull. Not to mention the weight of your sin and my sin upon his shoulders. All of it. Every last drop of that cup of suffering had been drained. Every bit of torture inflicted by them and by our sin was finished. His suffering to Telestai, it is finished. Second, his earthly life was also finished. Of course, we know that he will defeat the grave, but he returned with a resurrected body. In a very real sense, this was the completion of his incarnation, his in-the-flesh existence. That's what that word means, as God and man. His need to live as one of us was fulfilled and no longer warranted him being found in human likeness. And so now there was no further task that tied him to this earthly life. The one who, in the words of Paul to the Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, was now free to be exalted to the right hand of God the Father once again. And the only human being who has ever known from the very beginning the exact moment when he would die the only person who's ever been able to see that invisible hourglass of his life and know when the last grain of sand would fall to the bottom. The only one who ever told his mother, my hour has not yet come at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, who told his disciples that the bridegroom would one day be taken away from them, and he told those closest to him months before his death and resurrection would occur. The same one had finished his time, completed his earthly journey. His life on this earth in that moment was finished. Third, many preachers and scholars reflecting on this text suggest that Jesus' perfect obedience was finished in this moment. That the one in Luke chapter 2 verses 41 to 49 reminds us, we're reminded of as a boy wandering away from his parents you remember that story, he's 12 years old. They're a day's journey toward home, and they discover that their 12-year-old is nowhere to be found. And so they turn around, and they go back to Jerusalem, and they spend three days searching for him, except for they didn't understand where he needed to be, and that was in his father's house. Why? Because he lived in perfect obedience to his father. The one who lived the life you and I could not live one of total surrender and perfect obedience. The one of the, the author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 15 says, was tempted as we are, yet was without sin. And the one by whose obedience Paul declared in Romans 5:19 will be made righteous. And that moment, on that dark Friday afternoon, his obedience to the Father was complete. To Telestai, it was finished. Yes, his suffering was finished. His earthly life was finished. His perfect obedience was finished. But there's more. You see, Jesus wasn't thinking of his life or his suffering. I don't think that was the point. That would be inconsistent with his character. Beyond his 33 years and all they entailed, his life and death transformed for all of eternity so much more. That brings us to our fourth point. In this moment, the scripture of old were fulfilled. 
Here's what the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said. I forewarned you a few weeks ago, you're going to hear a lot of Spurgeon from me. And, And I want you to listen to this quote because it's so chock full of meaning. Spurgeon said this, when Jesus said, it is finished, the whole book from the first to the last in both the law and the prophets was finished in him. There is not a single jewel of promise from that first emerald which fell on the threshold of Eden to that last sapphire stone of Malachi which was not set in the breastplate of the true high priest. Nay, there is not a type from the red heifer downward to the turtle dove, from the hyssop upwards to Solomon's temple itself, which was not fulfilled in him, and not a prophecy, whether spoken on Cheber's bank or on the shores of Jordan, not a dream of wise men, whether they had received it in Babylon or Samaria or Judea, which was not now fully wrought out in Jesus Christ. You see, my friends, In Jesus Christ, every promise, every prophecy, every type, every institution, and every emblem of Scripture was fulfilled. The priesthood, the temple, the altar, the sacrificial system, all of it completed for good by the one who declared in Matthew 5.17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so in that moment, he declared to Telestai, it's accomplished, it's finished. The scriptures of old are fulfilled. And with that fulfillment came two more things that were finished. In your outlines, the next thing that's finished in that moment is sin and the works of the adversary. Satan himself was finished. Now, preacher, you say, I'm not sure I follow you. As I look at the world around me and even the recesses of my very heart, sin and the devil seem to be very much alive. How many of you would say amen to that? Yet if we take to be true the words of 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, where we read, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, what do we make of the evil one's continual presence and impact on our lives? Christian, it is our belief that at the moment of Christ's death, hear me, he had under his heel the head of that great serpent. And he struck the blow that will ultimately render him inoperative. What you feel now could be described as the thrashing around of a serpent that knows that he's dying and is endeavoring to do as much damage as possible before he finally breathes his last. When you struggle with temptation or you're wounded by the sinfulness of others, don't ever forget that the sting of death is just a temporary thing. Sin's days are numbered and destruction of that great enemy has already been guaranteed. It is finished. Even sin and the works of the adversary. And finally, may I suggest to you that Tetelestai delivers a final blow It finishes, if you will, suffering and death. It numbers the days days of diseases and pandemics. Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you glad that one day there will be no more pandemics worldwide? It, It ends violence that takes away children from their parents and parents from their children. It guarantees the end of a day when weapons of mass destruction will exist. 
the day when dictators and tyrants will no longer be able to bring pain and heartache to others. It guarantees the completion of the day when wars and rumors of wars will no longer be a thing of nuclear weapons. Jesus' death delivers a final, decisive victory over suffering and death. For while creation groans, and we ourselves, Paul says, groan as we await the redemption of our bodies, the outcome has already been determined. In the great revelation to the Apostle John, chapter 21, you and I, into whose hearts God has put eternity, are promised that the one who conquers through the blood of the Lamb will dwell with God in a place where death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And if you're living in fear today of the valley of the shadow of death, through which you are walking, and you've been bought by the blood of the Lamb, you have no reason to fear, for suffering and death have been defeated, and you will see that reality come to pass. Suffering and death have been finished to Telestai. So much finished. Have you ever considered who heard those words that day? Who the audience was of this great declaration? For whose ears did the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world intend this word to Telestai? He cried it, I would suggest, to the Father. Father, the work for which you sent me is complete. It is finished. He cried it to the unseen angelic host. Those of whom he said it is betrayal and arrest in Matthew 26, 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? To the cherubim, the seraphim, the burning spirits, the divine agents. To those of whom the songwriter reflected, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set me free. He declared, it is finished. He cried it to the throng of Old Testament saints, those like Abel and his friends, or Abraham and Isaac, who, as Spurgeon suggests, saw from heaven the altar smoking, and Levites and priests continuing to shed blood and ask, Lord, when will the sacrifices end? Like David, Hezekiah, Josiah, Rebekah, Sarah, Job, or Esther, gazing intently on the Son of God with eyes transfixed as he presents his own blood in place of the sacrifices of old, and cries out, it is finished, it is finished. That for which you have been looking for so long is finally, fully achieved forever. It is finished. And I would suggest to you, he cried it to hell itself. Pastor Joel Gregory asks this, I wonder if the adversary had to cover his very ears. The one who from the gates of Eden had let loose the hounds of hell to stop the purposes of God. The one who had animated Herod the Great to butcher the infants in Bethlehem. The one who had tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. The one who had tried to slay him in the garden. I wonder if the devil himself didn't hear that shout of triumph. It is finished. And ladies and gentlemen, he cried it to you and to me. All that you have searched for. All that would fulfill your heart. The payment for your sin. An abundant life. A place that he went to prepare for you. All of it. To tell us, die. It is finished. 
And just in case you doubt the validity of his declaration, in case you're skeptical about the certainty of the impact of his death, his words had an immediate, tangible impact in that moment and in the hours that followed, convincing many who witnessed the events that Jesus' words had changed the course of history. The great veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom to declare the separation of God and man finished. The earth shook and rocks split at the moment of his death to proclaim to all of creation itself, it is finished. Many tombs of holy people in Jerusalem broke open, according to Matthew chapter 27, verse 52, and the dead were raised and walked around Jerusalem, dealing to death a sting, a fatal blow. It is finished. The stone that sealed the place of his burial was rolled away, and Christ was raised. An emphatic proclamation to the grave. It is finished. Those present in the temple, the earth and the rocks themselves, the tombs, the stone that sealed his grave, they all heard that word to Telestai for what it was, a word of victory, a word that changed things, a word that put into effect a new reality on earth and in heaven, a word the power of which I would suggest was greater than any word that had ever been spoken before. Some have wrongly concluded that this last powerful word of Jesus Christ on the cross was a cry of despair. They've interpreted it as if Jesus was saying, I came to this generation, but they would not receive me. I offered them the kingdom of God, but they rejected me. Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, Romans, and my own disciples have turned their backs on me, so I am finished. Dear friends, make no mistake about it. This was no cry of defeat. Rather, this was a cry of victory by the one who said to his disciples, Take heart, I have overcome the world. The Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world. Our great substitute has paid the great ransom. The purposes of God have triumphed over death. All of Scripture has been fulfilled. Sin and the works of the adversary have been dealt a final blow. The days of suffering and death are numbered. The redemptive shedding of Jesus Christ's blood done once for all is finished and stands finished forever. Do you believe that? Do you really believe it's finished? And does your life reflect it? In 1974, on the island of Lubang, 93 miles southwest of Manila, a soldier finally gave up his weapon after fighting a war that had ended some 27 years before. Lieutenant Haru Onoda, an intelligence officer trained in guerrilla tactics, had held up in the jungle. Built bamboo huts, pilfered rice and other food from a village, and killed cows for meat in order to survive. As unbelievable as it seems, he and three enlisted men had refused to believe that the war was over and that Japan had surrendered to the United States of America. They had discovered leaflets that had been dropped declaring the war to be over, but they were convinced that they were lies, that they were propaganda printed by the enemy. And loyalty to a military code that taught death was preferable to surrendering caused them to remain at war. 
and to continue to evade American and Filipino search parties and islanders who they took to be guerrilla fighters. One of the three enlisted surrendered five years after the end of the war in 1950. The other two were shot dead, one in 1954 and the other finally in 1972 by local police. Both of them died still thinking the war was ongoing. Finally, in 1974, a student, a student from Japan who refused to believe reports that Onoda was dead, went to the island of Lubang. He searched the jungles, and he found him. But still, the lieutenant refused, please, to give up the fight and go home. Even when the student told him of the atomic bombs of Japan's surrender, this lieutenant insisted that he would not leave unless he received an order from commanders above him certifying the war was over and that he was to go home. It took the government of Japan sending a delegation to the island that included his former commander to finally convince him to lay down his weapon and to give up the fight. Finally convinced him that the war, in fact, was finished. At the risk of sounding overly simplistic, I'd like to suggest to you there are two kinds of people who are here within the sound of my voice this morning. First, those like the lieutenant who didn't know or believe that the battle was over. You this morning don't know, you don't understand, you have not before considered the fact that the war for your soul has already been won. And second, there are those who have already accepted the victory and see the words of Christ for what they are, words of completion. If you're like the lieutenant this morning and you're still fighting a battle, if you're still hanging on to the idea that it all depends on your ability to be good enough or to do enough, may I encourage you to recognize that in this final word on the cross, Jesus declared once and for all that it is over. And the battle for your soul has been won. You need not continue to bear that heavy load. You don't need to continue to defend yourself you don't even need to continue to try to be a better man, a better woman, a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a son, daughter. You see, Jesus has already accomplished that for you. And of, this, of struggling to make sense of this life and find purpose and meaning, Jesus has declared, it can be over for you. There's more. There's so much more available to you because of the one who came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. The one who finished what we could never complete in order to secure for us what only he could offer, life everlasting. Friends, if that's you this morning, you only need to lay down your weapons, acknowledge his victory, and come and follow him. He finished it all on the cross for you. The war was finished some 2,000 years ago. Don't continue to live as if it hasn't been. And if you're among the second group of people today, those who've accepted it, may I encourage you to be like the student who would not give up on this lieutenant? You see, Japan had already declared him to be dead in 1959. 
Those who knew him assumed he was long gone, but for some reason that student would not. And if it hadn't been for that student who refused to give up, who refused to believe, searching for him was a lost cause. Well, that lieutenant may very well have died in the jungle, never heard, having heard the good news that he could go home, that he didn't need to fight anymore. The world around us needs more people like that student. Those who are willing to go on rescue missions for our families, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, and the unreached in our neighborhoods and to the ends of the earth. Those who are willing to go on missions to declare to those who have not heard the great end of the war on sin and suffering. Missions to bring them out of the jungles of their sin and despair. And if you're among that second group of people, may I also suggest that you need not to live as if you believe to Telestai is not true. And yet so many Christians do. Our lives ought to be those characterized by belief in the certainty of the work on the cross for us. Belief in the definitive, unquestionable defeat of Satan himself. Believe that the days of the power of sin are numbered. Belief that Christ's work is enough to save your soul. And belief that death has no power over those who have been crucified with Christ. To tell us, die. It is finished. A word of victory. A word that changes everything. Have you heard it? And do you believe it? Would you pray?